Light a campfire, and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Hello, and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasha, and my guest today is renowned conservation biologist, Dr. Raghu Chundawat. Raghu is one of India's best-known tiger experts and has spent over a decade researching the tiger population of Pana National Park, as described in his book, The Rise and Fall of the Emerald Tigers. Raghu will be speaking to us about tiger conservation in India, from the early days of Project Tiger to the steps that now need to be taken to ensure continued future for India's tiger population. Dr. Raghu Chundawat, thank you so much for coming to chat to us about tiger conservation in general, Project Tiger, and your own personal experiences with tigers. Thank you, Kasia. I'm really happy to be with you and talking about the tiger conservation. You have an extremely long personal experience with tigers and tiger conservation, and I would like to speak about that a little bit later. But before we get into that, just to set the scene for those who are not very familiar with the topic, I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about Project Tiger, which was introduced almost 50 years ago now. Could you tell us a little bit about the project and about the issues that it was introduced to solve at the time. Uh, it all started in late 60s when there was some tiger conservationists realized that the tiger numbers are going down and legal hunting was rampant. And it so happened in Delhi, um, the I think IUCN conference happened and that's the first time when India registered a number which was about 2,500 tigers. It shocked the world because at the turn of the century, there was an estimate that we had about 40,000 tigers to come down to 2,500. It was a shocker for everybody. And India was shaken. The then Prime Minister at that time, Mrs. Gandhi, then thought we should do something immediately. And so immediate thing was to stop all kind of hunting of tigers in India. That was in 69, I think it happened. And then uh, drafted a act called Wildlife Protection Act, 1972. And they launched a thing which is a very unique uh, conservation program called Project Tiger. And they selected uh, initially nine areas for the conservation of tigers in India. That was the start of our conservation campaign in India for tigers. Since then, now we have about 51 tiger reserves in India. The way it's set up is that in the Wildlife Conservation Act, we had two categories of protected areas. One was national park and one was wildlife sanctuary. The difference between the two was in the national park, very strict protection measures were recommended and all the rights that people had has to be settled. And so they were then resettled somewhere outside the, the boundaries. Whereas in sanctuaries, those rights can be settled within the boundaries. So there are different approaches in wildlife sanctuaries and in national parks. Over the years, things have moved on, and now we have five different categories of protected areas. So now you have national parks, sanctuaries, conservation reserves, community reserves, and tiger reserves. Initially, for three decades, tiger reserve was not a legal entity. It was just a management unit. So some of the national parks were selected as a project tiger site, and they were called tiger reserves. And so they got extra funding and extra support 
system for those tiger reserves. That's how they were managed. You mentioned at the time that hunting of tigers was one of the issues that were actually threatening the species. Can you speak a little bit about the other issues that tigers were facing and that were actually leading to a decline in numbers? The most important was the loss of tiger habitat. A lot of dams were being built and some of the dam sites were in the forested areas in the heart of the tiger habitat. A lot of other development activities were happening. India, after independence, this was the second decade, development was the priority and some of the tiger habitat suffered from those development activities. Legal hunting of tigers was rampant. There was almost no regulation in that. And then simultaneously, illegal hunting was also happening. So if I've got a block of hunting, I got a permit for one tiger, I can go and shoot three or four tigers. There was no regulation and monitoring happening. That was one reason. Second was this um, habitat loss in large, large scales because dams were submerging over 50 square kilometer, 100 square kilometers of the tiger habitat. So those were the serious, serious issues that time. And this really came about as quite a shock, this drop in, in, in tiger numbers, the way that I understand it. I mean, I've seen excerpts from some of your talks where you spoke about that in your childhood, it was actually quite a common thing to see a tiger. Well, my father was a forest officer. So wherever we're going, he made sure that we will leave in the evening after 4.30 or 5 o'clock, hoping to see some wild animals. So many times I remember I see a tiger on the, on the road. It was a common sight. And actually, in fact, I, Bhopal, the, the Madhya Pradesh state, the capital city is Bhopal. And I was talking to my mother one day and she was saying that where they were living now is a place called New Market. It's the heart of the city now, right in the middle of a metropolitan city. And she was saying there in 58, 59, she was there. One of her calf was taken away by a tiger. I was traveling with my father and he said the first tiger hunt he has seen with sitting with his brother. Then he showed me a tree where he had a machan and they shot the tiger. And there is no forest for another another 20 kilometers from there. So a lot has changed since the time in 50s and 60s. It was a difficult time for tigers. Absolutely. So all of this, the, the whole concept of Project Tiger was structured to to bring back this natural resource, which is actually quite iconic, isn't it? Yes, and it was very successful. And people generally talk and assess the success in terms of tiger numbers. So if you look at what we had when we started our tiger campaign in early 70s, we had about 2,000 tigers. And now recent estimates say about 27 to 2,900 tigers. So we have achieved a little bit, but not it's not so exciting. What's exciting? For me, we are able to hold on to all the geographical regions where Tiger was present. Tiger is still present in the same areas. And that's the biggest success of Tiger Reserve, that we still have tigers in all its habitats where it's, when we started our tiger campaign. And then tiger habitat is still intact in most of these areas. And if you really want to take it forward, then there is a, enough opportunity that we can have more than 67,000 tigers in a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. So the habitat is there and breeding population is there to build on. Now, just to move back to the national parks and the reserves that, that protect this habitat. So the way these are structured in India are a little bit different to what many of our listeners may be accustomed to or used to from Africa. Could you describe a little bit about how the reserves are 
structured and managed. And in particular, the concept of the buffer zone, which is something that we don't see in all that many reserves in the African context. Yeah, it's uh, it's very different. Uh, one of the biggest difference in India is that the entire forest areas or tiger habitat are uh, managed and run by one agency, which is the forest department. Mm-hmm. And so you have one policy which governs all the conservation actions. And we have only one conservation model right now, which is based on protected area network. So we have wildlife sanctuaries, we have uh, national parks, we have tiger reserves, we have community reserves. One of the problems which I see with this model, it's a very exclusive model which believes in the tiger needs space and we have to provide them space and we have provided that space in form of different protected areas. So the entire focus of and effort has been to do conservation within the boundaries that has been demarcated as a result of creating these protected areas. So the conservation is limited within the boundaries of these protected areas. It's been a very successful. It has stabilized the numbers. It has stabilized habitat within those boundaries. It's been very, very successful. But outside the protected areas, there's still large number of tiger habitat, very extensive tiger habitat, connectivity, corridors, which is not benefited from the tiger conservation. The way it is managed is that in India, what we call wildlife conservation is uh, and forest conservation on a concurrent list. The states are very independent, but in this case, the policies are made by the federal government and the day-to-day running is managed by the state. Mm -hmm. In the tiger reserves, there is a 50-50% of sharing of the expenses and tiger reserves gets extra money from this project tiger. Mm -hmm. Then in the national park is in tiger reserve now it's mandated that you have core and buffer areas the core are what we call critical tiger habitat where they're supposed to be inviolate of human activities and and then you have buffer surrounding mm-hmm. this uh, core they describe it as like a shock absorbers so yes so you have created a habitat where all the external pressures can be absorbed i don't agree with that concept because i think if you have a vulnerable core you need a buffer which is stronger than strongly protected than the core uh, like you say egg is a vulnerable core and then you need the shell to protect it when your buffer has got all the problems then how can it absorb this shock away because within it it's got all the problems so the problems continues to remain at the periphery of the our core area and core still continue to suffer from the same problems and buffer doesn't help much in that sense. Not very convincing for me, the core and buffer the right way of going, but it sounds very nice and people, there's a huge support for having a buffer area. And we now have legal mandate to have all the tiger reserves should have a core and a buffer. And in buffer, the status quo remains as far as the rights of the people in the forest. The only thing is that the management, which used to be from the commercial forestry services, it is now gone in the hands of the wildlife department, the tigerism authority. So they're managing those forests, but the rights of the people exist there. Personally, you know, in your own view, what do you feel would be the better alternative to, to a buffer zone and, and a core? Do you believe in just having one reserve and the same rules apply throughout? Yes, that's the thing, because the only one agency manages and operates in these habitats because they almost own the, the land. So. If it works, then the whole country, it works. If it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. But the problem is that if you want to 
do conservation outside, we need a completely different approach. Mm -hmm. So we need a philosophically different mindset when you're working within the protected area and when you're working with the outside the protected area, which is dominated by human settlements. Mm -hmm. So outside the protected area, we should have an approach that those, those forests need tigers yes. rather than an approach in protected area where we're saying the tiger needs space and we provide it. Here we're saying these forests, they don't, it doesn't have a tiger, in, but it needs tiger there. Mm -hmm. Now, if it needs, we want tiger in those habitats and people are, are there, then we need the goodwill of the people to have tiger existing with, with them. And that goodwill has to be generated through in, incentives. And people generally talk of tourism. Tourism brings in quite a lot of interest, but it alone can't generate that kind of money. Say for village economy, we're talking about 10 million rupees needed to, that's the turnover of a, a typical village in India is. Then you need that much amount of money coming in to the village from economies which are tiger friendly or forest friendly. So we need to have a completely different approach. And basically you're looking at development or social welfare scheme, but it's tiger friendly and it's nature friendly and make these communities an active partner in conservation. So in current scenario, what is happening is the entire conservation program is limited within the boundary. Outside, we have left it mm -hmm. to the villages to participate in conservation on voluntary basis. There is no economic incentives for them to participate. And when they are struggling for day-to-day -day living, so any threat, whether it's a predation, depredation of their livestock or on crops, they won't like it because they are really struggling. And village economy is not growing the way our industrial economy growing, maybe about 6 or 7% or 8%. Here in tiger habitat, rural economy may be down in minus or maybe growing it 2 or 3%. So we need to change that. We need to bring them up, but we can't bring in those mainstream development activities into these forest habitat. We need activities uh, which brings in money for the people, which actually there should be a cause and effect. So they are getting benefit and the effect should be that they participate in conservation, creates an environment to tiger to survive in those in their neighboring forests. Absolutely. I actually listened to a webinar where you spoke about the need to create conservation-based economies. So this is the concept that, that you've just been talking about, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what, what we have done is that we have kind of adopted a couple of villages which kind of survive on about 800 square kilometer forest habitat, fantastic tiger habitat, but you don't have tigers there, very hardly any wildlife. When we did a household survey, we found there three main sources of income, agriculture, labor, and dairy-based. And the main pressure on the wildlife habitat is through from the dairy activities. Each family will have about three to four uh, livestock and each household will own, will be there, but with, on average there will be three families in each household. So we're talking about each household has about seven to eight livestock. And if you have, we're talking about 150 households, you're talking about 600, 700 livestock, mm -hmm. buffaloes and cows. And yes. that's the pressure on those tiger habitats. Yeah. And the productivity of these buffaloes and cows is, is almost nil. From the cows, the cows may give maybe half a liter of milk. Buffaloes may be giving one and a half to two liters of milk. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is that if we can convert this dairy-based economy into a forest-friendly and tiger-friendly activity. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to 
expose these villages to modern dairy farming things. So we have taken them, done some educational tour where it was an eye-opener. They couldn't believe that the, a domestic breed from India, or from hot climates, can give up to 15 to 20 liters of milk. They just couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Now they're so excited on the way back, they're itself saying that, how can we, where we get it, how we can do it. They want to do it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I'm just waiting for them to take them to some of the buffalo places because they own a lot of buffalo. The idea is that that is the skill they had. We don't want to bring in new skill and new economy where they have to learn and change. So they already mm-hmm. have this skill. And we want that if you can reduce the number by half mm-hmm. and increase their income twice or double the income, we have reduced the mm-hmm. pressure on the forest. Plus these livestock has to be stall fed. So then, you know, you're reducing serious amount of pressure on the forest that will create a suitable environment for the prey species to come back. Breeding of birds can be helped. Tigers will find a suitable place. Leopards will find a suitable place. It will come. And I, I hope that if we can be successful in doing this in 10 years' time, one can go for a walk and able to see tigers and leopards there. That sounds wonderful. Now, when you speak, you know, you said we're, we're doing this. When you use that word, we, this is through an NGO that you founded yourself. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's called Bhavan. It's named after a tiger. It's called 52. Bhavan is, uh, in Hindi, is uh, 52. And we call her 52 because our eyebrows says 5 and 2. The markings on the eyebrows like 5 and 2. And that's how we call her. And she was the matriarch. And we followed her four generations of tigers. When I was studying, full name is mm-hmm. Bag Apur 1, which means the tiger, uh, the communities, and the forest. That's a wonderful initiative. I think this is the ideal place to talk about your actual experiences with tigers. You're very, very well known for your tiger work, one of India's premier tiger scientists, and you've researched so much and, and written books and publications. But tigers weren't actually the first species that you studied. What made you change your focus to them? How did you come to doing this really well-known study that you did on tigers in Panna National Park? Well, the, my first subject mm-hmm. was snow leopards. So I did my PhD on snow leopards. Mm-hmm. And during those six years when I was in the field, I saw it only 20 times. And most of them were a fleeting glimpse. Mm-hmm. And the data came very, with, you know, very few amount of data I will accumulate after a lot of hard work because we were up at around 4,000 meters to 5,000 meters. That's the range of elevation where we were working. One of the things that time when I was doing my PhD, I said, if I'm going to do the research again next time, I'm going to a place where I can collect data easily. (laughs) (laughs) But when I joined the faculty, I was thrown into a controversy in another tiger reserve because of the poaching. The population has declined. And Supreme Court was involved in it. There was public interest litigations. And as our institute was, uh, organization was involved for monitoring of the tiger population and census work there, and I was sent in there. And then when I started looking at that, tigers are declining, but where is the information? Which other habitat where tiger is vulnerable? There was no such information I was able. When I collected the information, then I realized that tiger is declining at a much faster rate from the drive forest and the dry forest contribute about more than 50 percent of the tiger habitat in india so it is the largest tiger habitat this is where the tigers are declining so i thought i should go find out why dry forest is suffering 
So I selected a few sites and Panna I found was a suitable place for radio telemetry work and it has got all the threats that's what we were looking. I went there to look at document a decline of a population. But when we started working there, uh, one of the benefit of uh, intensive monitoring through radio calling is that it provides a very protected environment to individuals. And when we have radio collared breeding females, they were, because of our monitoring, um, they were protected from those threats which were responsible for decline. Actually, we saw a completely different side of it and the population recovered and it was hailed in the conservation world as one of the success stories. But as soon as our, our radio pro coloring monitoring program was stalled, the mortality hit the, those breeding females and we had a local extinction after four years after my project ended. And that's why the book is called Rise and Fall of the Emerald Tiger. Absolutely. So when you talk about dry forest and, and, and Pana, can you describe a little bit about what exactly you're referring to? What is dry forest and, and what are the, you know, the threats that are very specific to that kind of habitat? Yeah, it's, uh, the, the Panna forest is very similar to Kruger, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or any forest in Zimbabwe or um, Zambia in terms of the structure. Not very tall trees. It's not a savanna, but it's a very low density forest. So you, even within the forest, you have a lot of undergrowth in terms of grass and things like that. And the, the way we can describe forest, not necessarily all the time you have poor rainfall, like Panna gets quite substantial amount of rainfall, 1100 millimeters. So it's a fairly good amount of rainfall, but 80% of those happens in two months, July and August during the monsoon. And then you have about 10 months of drought, almost no rain. So that creates extreme dry environment. And, and the threats that are specific with that, with that kind of habitat, how do they differ? Oh, so I have published a paper which I call a scale mismatch. Yes. And that phenomena. So the, what we realized that the space needed for a female tiger was three to four times larger than any other tiger habitat okay. in India. So if you go to moist deciduous forests or the Tarai area, the foothills of the Himalayan, which is one of the most productive, there the average home range size of the female may be about 15 to 20 square kilometers, whereas in Panna was about 40 square kilometers. Oh, wow. And the male tiger range would be about 150 to 170 square kilometers. So, so we need we needed three or four times larger spaces in, in, uh, in dry forest. But if you look at it, the... The space what we have provided in dry forest is smaller than needed. So you you have a situation where you have a protected area, you have breeding females as small as Panna, then all the breeding females, their territory extended up to the periphery or beyond the periphery. So you have a situation where you all your females are surviving in two mortality regimes. One when they are inside, which is heavily protected, and one when they are outside the protected area where they are exposed to all the threats. If you buffer where the mortality is high, then it can turn into a, what we call in science um, ecological trap. So you create an environment by creating a buffer for tiger to come outside and because the habitat is good, but the mortality is high, then you asking females to go out and getting exposed. And that's what was happening in dry forest. And if you look at it over 100 years history, you're seeing that the smaller protected areas are the areas where we lost tiger first. And if you see recent history, so we have seen two extinctions, both of them are from the protected areas, both of them are from 
dry forest. So Sariska and Panna, two extinctions happened. They both happened in uh, dry forest. So it kind of uh, suggests that the dry forest is highly vulnerable. We need larger spaces. Now we can't enlarge our protected area. So there is a much, what I am suggesting is that we need to create three priorities. We need three priorities. One is that we have to make these populations viable. We need to make them connected. And then what we need is we need an exclusive conservation model to support whatever we have. They need to be slightly different management techniques that are put in place. Is that correct? Yeah, what I'm suggesting that you have to create satellite habitats rather than have a ring around the protected areas. You identify different satellite habitats, maybe one or two females, mm. but it's easy to protect, inclusive models, and they are interconnected. So you're creating localized metapopulation structures. And some of these satellite habitats can be very strategically located as a stepping stone to connect with other localized uh, metapopulations. So you create a nested metapopulation in a landscape. And that's the approach I'm suggesting. Okay. I think the concept you're talking about is a bit similar to what we speak of as wildlife corridors in, in Africa, where there, you know, where there's potential for wildlife to move between protected areas. Yeah. So the, the only difference is that we're not protecting the whole of corridors. Mm. What we're doing, we, identifying few habitats and so between two tiger reserves if you say 100 dead crow flying distance straight distance is about 150 kilometers if you create two stepping stone habitats all of a sudden tiger has to only move 50 kilometers at a time and that it can do in a couple of days so there's a much better chance of tiger reaching uh, the gene flow to happen if you have 150 kilometers it will take two three months for it to do that then there are chances of mortality is higher and reaching to that place. So there may be one tiger in a 10 years may reach to other population. Whereas if you created a stepping stone, you increases the chances. So you may have maybe four tigers reaching to other tiger habitat uh, in 10 years. So you can double or triple the uh, probability of tigers moving across the habitat. So obviously, you know, you, d you did focus a lot on the tiger population in Pana. And as you say, you published a, a, a book about it. Could you just tell us a little bit about your experiences with that tiger population and the numbers and, and how they rose and fell and, and maybe about what the tiger population in Pana looks like right now? So when we started, we had great difficulty identifying tigers, localizing them and putting radio collars. So we, tiger numbers were low. Tigers were very shy and could do one tiger a year or something like that because the vet has to come from different parts of India to help me tranquilize and radio collar. But what had happened was that when we radio collared this particular individual we call 52 or Bhavan, she had a litter of three females. And when they grew up monitoring the mother, they were kind of little used to our presence and then we could radio collar all three of them. and. They settle around the mother. And what had happened is that when you monitoring very intensively, you providing a protection kind of a shield to these females because our presence is constant. So the poaching of these breeding individuals kind of declined and they bred. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, from say 10, 12 tigers in uh, 95, 96, by 2000, we had about 35 tigers. Mm -hmm. By 2002, that we were talking about anywhere between 35 to 40 tiger. That's the capacity I think um, tiger you can have in Panna Tiger Reserve because it's only about 450 square kilometers. 
somehow I ran into problems with the authorities. My permissions were rescinded and my program kind of a, had an abrupt halt. And the, the protection measures which were provided by monitoring those radio collar tigers was not there. Mm-hmm. These tigers were pushed out in no time. Between 2004, where we, I was out of the park, and 2008 and 9, all the tigers have died, disappeared. And then from 2009, they introduced tigers. Now we are back to about 25 to 30 tigers in the Panna. And the tigers are based on the, the recent All India Census report, which has come out in 2018. But the local authorities think they have more than 70 tigers, which is not anywhere near to the reality. I think the annual census was very accurate about uh, the numbers. And I think they, in Panna now we have about 25 to 30 tigers. When you say the tigers were reintroduced, were they translocated from other areas of India? Yeah, so they brought three individuals um, in, in the first go. There was a male. They all came from three different parks and they had great difficulty keeping them there, especially the male who tried to go back and almost mm-hmm. reached to the place where it came. But he was brought back and uh, somehow after a lot of hard work, they managed to hold on to those tigers and they bred successfully and been a very successful reintroduction program. You know, have things changed enough that the causes that led to the decline of the population in the first place are not going to repeat themselves again with this new population of tigers? Unfortunately, that was never recognized. Mm-hmm. So the, the problem that caused the decline still exists there with this population. But they've been successful mainly because they all the tigers have been, breeding tigers have been radio collared. About six or seven females have uh, mm-hmm. been monitored regularly every day, every hour. There's a protection measures given to individual tigers and they're successfully breeding it. As long as that goes on, tiger is fine. But the moment you remove that kind of monitoring, then you will, I, I don't think we will have um, the growth what we're seeing in last 10 years. So they have not addressed the issue why uh, we lost the tiger population that still exists. That's one of the problems with the introduction program is that the people think that introduction itself is a conservation measure. It's a management tool for the conservation. So you have to have a conservation plan. I have not seen that conservation plan. So you can't just reintroduce the tigers and think, you know, nature will take care of itself and balance will be restored. You actually, you have yeah. to have a plan that, yeah. that backs it up. Yeah, first to recognize why we lost it and then have a plan to address that. Whatever is success, the threat still remains there. You spent, I think I think it was 10 years with the Tigers of Pana. I mean, there must have been challenges, but there must also have been really wonderful moments. Do you have any favorite experiences from that time that you still, you know, that still live on in your memory? Oh, there are many. It was, I think, one of the best time of uh, my life to be able to every day for four years with the tigers in the forest, living in there. A couple of experiences was amazing. One was um, able to see the rearing of very young cubs for over a month. Um, usually, tigers are very shy at the way they keep their mm, cubs uh, in a very remote area. And they are very, very shy. So if they know you are present, they will move the literate to some place and so most of the time we never saw litter at that very young age and it was in a location where we could see it from distance 
it was in a gorge and we can sit somewhere where the sun comes out behind us so she looking at us then the sun is right on her eye so she can't see and so we can get into a place where we can then hide ourselves and kind of watch her so we have seen those cubs from about 4 or 5 days old to about almost 1 and 1/2 months old and um those were some of the some of the best best time i think was my memory about knowing seeing how dedicated mother and the, one of the thing which most i liked was the cleanliness the cleaning the cup cleaning herself cleaning her teeth every time they suckle she will clean her teeth clean the cups also and the, the cleanliness what she kept was quite amazing for me that sounds like an absolutely amazing experience yeah no Raga, to go back to to Project Tiger, we're now almost fifty years on from the launch, and you've mentioned that you feel that one of the biggest successes is having created that that land and those key sanctuaries for the tiger. Do you feel that there are now new threats or new challenges, or how have the threats that that the project was initially started to counteract have those changed? Are there new challenges? Are there new things that you have to think about and consider now? Yeah, I know it's very dynamic. Uh, every decade we have seen very different challenges. So 90s was trade in tiger bone, tiger parts was a serious problem and the poaching was rampant and hit us uh, unprepared. And then 2000 to 2010 we had demand for skin uh, early on that happened. This decade, last decade, I think is the linear projects are the serious problem because India now developing road net- network and now we are building roads in the western style which is four lane uh, high speed straight lines there are hardly any chance for any animal to go across because you're talking about 100 meters wide roads and if you have a heavy traffic going through the forest there is very little chance that so these will be uh, canals uh, railway lines these are some of the serious serious issues and i think more than anything else these linear projects are going to be a severely roadblocks for dispersing animals so elephants will suffer most tigers will suffer and fragmentation large scale fragmentation the tiger is such an iconic species and i know that project tiger has become flagship project for conservation in india but the progress that has been made on it and the successes that it has achieved do you feel that it's actually contributed or meant something towards the conservation of other species in india as well in a big way really big way so first of all as i said that one of the biggest success of tiger conservation is that tiger survive in uh, all its habitat so the the habitat in all kind of different regions geography of india is being protected by these tiger reserves so now we have 50 of them so you have fairly large spread Uh, across the landscape of india from the foothills of the himalayas to to the almost desert semi arid to uh, rainforest areas really benefited to the uh, animal species which are not as wide ranging as tiger or elephant they've been really benefited that's wonderful to hear now ragu just to round off with you know we have spoken about conservation based economies and about benefits that need to come to communities in order for conservation to to be adopted and to be successful do you believe that there's a role that tourism can play in in helping this to create the sort of economy that benefits conservation ultimately and what do you think that role is and what are the things that you need to do and also to watch out for because obviously over tourism is is also a threat yeah the the tourism 
definitely can play a huge role. It can be a driving engine for conservation outside protected areas and bring then development for community. But um, the problem in India is that we hardly have any environment to create conservation tourism. So most of the parks are public, open to every public. Anybody can go and buy a land and build a lodge and then you run. So there is no control, there's no regulation on it. And the way the model is that we, what we have done is that we dump the same model which we run in and Delhi or Agra or Jodhpur, where somebody is going to see Taj Mahal, he selects a hotel accommodation based on his choice of budget and uh, what he likes, and then buy a permit, see Taj Mahal, and come out. Exactly the same thing is happening in, in their protected areas. So if I, I want to go to Corbett, I select the hotel based on my budget and choice, and I buy a permit, I go see tiger or elephant and come out. Now, we did a study looking at the value of wildlife tourism to community and wildlife. And we found that there's a huge amount of money that is generated. About 45% of it goes to the community directly. And this is only, in, I didn't have the knowledge on how to calculate indirect source of money and how to estimate, but I'm talking only, only direct source of money. 45% of it goes to the community directly. So it's a very, very large amount of money which is going back to the community. And I'm talking about 45% of the turnover. Uh, and if you include the entry fees, which is also going for conservation purposes into the park, it's another 11% you can add to it. So it's a very large amount which is going to. The problem with this is that there is no, because it's not designed or planned for conservation measures, this tourism model, so even though this money is going, there is no effect on conservation because there is no environment or platform created where this benefits going to the community helps conservation. So if I have a lodge, I'm a lodge owner, I have employed all the local people, but my people still depend on forests and they are part of the, all the threats that's for the tiger habitat facing. It's not responsible tourism, it's not conservation tourism. I need to make sure that that's my at least my charity begins at home. My staff families are independent of forest resources, and then the conservation tourism will more environment has to be created. But certainly, tourism can play a big role. The one of the problem when going to uh, new areas is that the tourism alone cannot bring in enough money to really make a big change. It can be a driving engine, but we need other source of incomes to help communities create a model where whatever benefit goes, there is a cause and effect. So you bring in money, they benefit, and then they, that is what the conservation actions community should be participating in. So like what we're doing with dairy is that if their income is doubled by a new breed of livestock, by stall feeding, we're reducing the pressure on the livestock. So that's the conservation measure action. So tourism, similarly, if you design it such a way that tourism comes and the benefit going, X amount of things happening for conservation. So, so we have to design tourism development in such a way that if any benefit is going, there isn't cause and effect of it. Absolutely. And that actually includes a lot of education as well. Absolutely, yeah. So the development is outside protected area. We're looking at not so much, so much for wildlife conservation. We're looking at the community welfare. Mm. So the community has to be benefited. It's a rural welfare schemes you're running. But the only thing is that the way you're running it, that the effect of it 
is conservation. Everything leads to conservation. So there's a very obvious tie-in between the welfare of the community and the conservation status of the surrounding areas. Yeah, because because our main philosophy there is that the forest need, tiger habitat needs tiger and tiger brings in value for the community. And that value, they're, if they're receiving, then the tiger has to exist there. And then only that value is coming. So that link has to be made. And then, then, then is where tourism can play a role. So there has to be that link and there has to be for obvious buy-in for the community to help and protect those resources. Yeah. They need to, they need to know or understand that having tigers and wildlife actually bringing all this money and they need to protect that to have that income. Raghu, thank you so much. You know, the time has absolutely flown by and I think you've given us a really fascinating glimpse into the status of tiger conservation and a little bit of the history and and a glimpse of what might happen going forward. And I think there's a lot of hope. There's still there's a lot of space, but absolutely a lot of hope for, for tigers in India. I definitely wish you the very best of luck with your initiatives and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you, Kathy. Actually, India has a lot of hope. If you look at the, some of the successful conservation programs, India is, can be rated very high up because if you see vulture, a lot of um, the rhinos, uh, lions, and the, but India have this share of successful pro- conservation programs, but also has this share of failures also. And somehow failures overwhelm success. But India is an exciting place uh, where everything is happening. Mm. So I see no doubt in that we will be able to bring changes uh, that we're looking for. Saying thank you very much for inviting me and really enjoyable for me. It's such a pleasure. I definitely think that India as a destination deserves so much more credit for the conservation work and for the incredible wildlife that it has. So it's always a pleasure to talk about it and, and try and bring a bit more awareness to it. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about And Beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.